you're anchored in a very deep feeling of well-being, a feeling that never leaves you. Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Mind Valley podcast. Our guest today is one of my personal mentors and one of the greatest MBA teachers of our generation. His name is Sri Kumar Rao. Now, first, don't worry about what I just said, MBA teacher. This isn't a talk on business. Rao became famous for teaching in schools such as Kellogg, Columbia, London Business School, because he would take ideas from Eastern philosophy and introduce them to MBA students. His classes got so popular because they focused not on business mastery, but personal mastery. And the classes became so popular that there would be a wait list to get in. It became one of the very first MBA classes where graduates, students who completed the class, would form their own alumni associations to stay in touch with other students. This is why Rao is one of the greatest teachers I've ever met. His program on Mind Valley, The Quest for Personal Mastery, which you can get from mindvalley.com, is currently our single highest rated program with an MPS score of 72, which is the same as the iPhone. So that is how powerful Rao's work is. Now, in this talk, you're going to listen to Rao when he got on stage at Mind Valley University in Croatia. And he's going to talk about how to make a quantum leap in your life. This talk is so beautifully profound. It was one of our highest rated talks at that event. Now, this is what Rao is going to share with you. He is going to be sharing anecdotes, analogies, life lessons centered around three of the core concepts from his classic personal mastery program. The core concepts are this. Number one, it's how everything we do or want are anchored to a feeling, how choosing to be wealthy or getting a beach body or that idea of a better life is often anchored to a feeling. And you will learn how to speed up your movement towards these goals by tapping into these feelings. Number two, you're going to learn how we are all control freaks, but we can break this attachment to control and let go of control and think differently. And this form of surrender often leads to you moving towards your ideal life much easier. Third, you will learn to control mental chatter, that internal monologue you have going on in your head the moment you wake up. So let's get started with the brilliant mind of Sri Kumar Rao. I'm Vishen Lakiani and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. Oh boy, such wonderful energy. I always like speaking to Mind Valley audiences. <laughs> Today, I'm going to be talking about how you can make a quantum leap. Now, how many of you believe that profound change can happen quickly? Do you think it's got to take weeks or months or so on? Or do you think it can happen almost immediately? Okay, I'm not sure whether it'll happen immediately, but it can happen pretty fast. And I'm willing to share with you that if you implement any two or three of the concepts I'm going to share with you, 
You can expect change to happen within a week or a couple of weeks. And I want to talk to you a little bit about your ideal life. Normally, when you talk to people about making a quantum leap, you think in terms of, gee, here's how much money I'm going to be making. Or, you know, I've got a business and here's how the revenues should be. And you talk about a bunch of things. But I'm inviting you to consider that that's not what you really want. Think about that. What you really want is not more money, but the feeling that you have when you have more money or a bigger house or whatever it is that you're looking for, correct? Let's go even deeper. That's not even true. What you're looking for is not the feeling you will have when you have more money or a better job or whatever, but the feeling that you think you will have when that happens. No, seriously, this is important. So, you know, spend some time thinking about that. And I'm here to get you to think of your life and success differently. Because though you may say, this is what I want, what you really want is you want to feel alive every day. Not just alive, you want to feel radiantly alive. You want to be comfortable in your skin. You want to feel that there is a purpose in your life and you're meeting that purpose in your life. In a manifesto that I have, it's on my website, basically what I talk about is an ideal life. And in your ideal life, you wake up in the morning energized. Your blood is singing at the thought of being who you are and doing what you do. That as you go through the day, you come radiantly alive. You could almost go down to your knees in involuntary gratitude. You face all kinds of problems, but they're really not problems because you don't define them as problems. You know, this is stuff that you have to deal with. And you deal with that stuff from a space of very, very, very deep well-being. What I would like for you is that you're anchored in a very deep feeling of well-being. A feeling that never leaves you. The knowledge that you are okay. You have always been okay. You will always be okay. In fact, you cannot not be okay. You are in the human predicament. When you're in the human predicament, stuff happens. There will be serious illness and death. There will be financial setbacks. There will be career reverses. There will be relationship issues. All of this is part of being in the human predicament. As this stuff happens, you will deal with it as appropriate, but you will deal with it from the space of, I'm okay. I will always be okay. You know, there's only one thing you need to do to have a really terrific day every day. And that is when you get up in the morning, simply decide you're going to have a terrific day. Now you're laughing at me. I don't like that. I'm being perfectly serious and sharing that with you and you're laughing at me. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Most of us don't have a terrific day because in our heads, we have some confusion and we mix up having a terrific day with something that has nothing to do with whether or not you have a terrific day. And that's the following. What you mix it up with is the thought that stuff should happen that you want to have happen. 
and stuff should not happen that you don't want to have happen. The universe is not going to play ball with you. But that has nothing to do with having a perfect day. Because if you get up in the morning and you decide that you're going to have a terrific day and then shit happens, it means you've got to spend some time cleaning up the shit. So in your terrific day, you allot some time to, I've got to clean up the shit that happens. So that's part of your terrific day. It's really as simple as that. We are going to go deeper in that. So I want you to have a word to bear in mind that when I say you're going to make a quantum leap, I say you're going to have a quantum leap in how you experience life. You cannot make a quantum leap in your life by working harder. In fact, working harder will probably set you back. You cannot make a quantum leap by working smarter or managing your time better. The only way you're going to pull that off is by thinking differently. Let me tell you a story. So I was in this really wonderful restaurant in the hill areas of India. I was in a beautiful hotel room, which was on a cliff and had a wonderful panoramic view over a valley, and it was all glass, and the windows could not be opened. And a small bird, I think it was a sparrow, flew in from an open skylight, and it was stuck in the room. And it was trying to get out, and it would repeatedly bang its head against the windows. And if you've seen something like that, you can imagine that situation. And of course, it was a stout glass window, didn't get anywhere, fell down, got up, flew again, banged the window, and I saw it was going to get hurt. And I rapidly drew the curtains, so the windows became dark. And when the windows became dark, the skylight above was still light, and it saw that and it escaped. That, if you will, is a wonderful metaphor for life. What we are very busy doing is flying around, bashing our heads against the windows, and that is not the way that you can get out. If you can disengage from that and see where the skylight is and go up, freedom. This requires you to think differently. Let me give you an example of that. Swami Vivekananda was a disciple of Sri Ramakrishna, who was an enlightened sage in Bengal in the 19th century. He came to the United States for the very first time in 1893 to attend the Chicago World Parliament of Religions. This was a really big deal. And he had never been to America, he had never left the country, knew absolutely nothing about what the Parliament of Religions was, had never been to America before, was inadequately closed. You can see he just had a coat, and it was a Chicago winter, which, as you know, can be brutal. And he had just arrived from India, and he had got lost, so some kind soul brought him in there. And there were many, many, many dignitaries from all the world religions up there. And... Within 10 seconds of his opening, he received a 10-minute standing ovation. And at the end of his talk, every single paper lauded him as the unquestioned star of that. He became a darling of American high society, traveled the length and breadth of America giving talks. And he was really the first person to introduce Americans to Indian thought and Indian philosophy. And what was it that brought the entire audience up? And it's a great example of thinking differently. He did it because it was innate to him. He wasn't trying to think differently. Well, this was a very formal affair, and everybody who got up 
used to begin by acknowledging honorable chairman, respected members, and they'd name out, you know, all the dignitaries present. And Swami Vivekananda did things differently. He got up and said, my brothers and sisters in America. And he was speaking from the heart, and that, as I said, got everybody up in a standing ovation just 10 seconds into his talk. Learn to think differently. Now, here's something that I'd like to share with you. You probably don't think of your life in this manner, but I now invite you to think of your life in this manner. Your entire life has been nothing but an attempt to exert control over some part of your internal or external environment. Think about it. You're all control freaks. Everything you do is an attempt to exert control over some part of your internal or external environment. Are you married? If you're married, you had this notion, well, if I get married, all these things are going to happen. You know, I'm going to live this wonderful life. Of course, that isn't true, as you've probably discovered by now. But you think it is. So you decide to get married. Do you have children? You say, well, if I have children, here are all the psychic and other benefits that I'm going to recognize. It's a good thing. So let's go ahead and do that. Did you start a business? You thought, well, you know, I'm tired of working for a boss and I'll go out and do my own things and make a lot of money and all these other great things are going to happen. Doesn't matter whether they did or not. In your head, you had a notion that I'm going to do this and then all this stuff will happen. And it is basically just an attempt to control some part of your internal and external environment. You don't think of your life in that way, but I'm now inviting you to think of your life in this way. Your entire life has been nothing but an attempt to exert control. I have good news for that. You do not have control. You never had control. You never will have control. You only have the illusion of control. By the way, I'm not knocking the illusion of control. I think the illusion of control is a fantastic thing. The illusion of control comes about because in your life, many times you have the notion that, you know, I'm at place A and I really want to be at place B. And if I do all of these wonderful things, I'll get from place A to place B. And darn it, it worked. So you say, hey, this is wonderful. It's worked in your life. It's worked in the lives of people around you, your friends, relatives, colleagues. And you say, yes, it works. I have control. In reality, you got lucky. Any of a million things that could have happened that completely could have derailed you did not happen, so it worked. So you think, yes, I have control. That is the illusion of control. And the illusion of control, by the way, I'm not knocking it. It's fantastic. That's what makes you get up in the morning. That's what makes you make plans. That's what makes you go out and execute on the plans. And that's what's led you to the success that you've enjoying so far. It's wonderful. But use the illusion of control, knowing that it is the illusion of control, because in every one of your lives, at some point, this illusion is going to break. And when it does, if you know that you're using the illusion of control, you simply say, okay, this is the time it broke down. Where do I go from here? But if you're using the illusion of control and you think it is real, that's when you fall apart.
Because things can happen in the darndest, totally, totally unexpected ways. How many of you can recall sometime in your life when something was going to happen, it was a complete slam dunk, and then things went south in a completely unexpected manner? It's happened before, it'll happen again. <laughs> Let me give you an example. I live in Long Island, which is a suburb of New York, and I love reading the New York Times. I have home delivery of the New York Times, and when you have home delivery of the New York Times, it's supposed to be in your driveway at 5.30 in the morning. My paper was not there at 5.30, was not there at 6.30. Sometimes it wasn't there at 7.30. And sometimes I go to Manhattan for meetings. And when I do, I take the train. And on the train, I like to read the Times. And I couldn't read the Times because it wasn't there. So I called up to complain. And the customer service rep was very, very friendly. Dear Mr. Rao, we're so sorry this happened to you. And I felt good about it. And I hung up. And the paper continued to be late. So I called up again. The second time, the rep was even more apologetic. We're so sorry you had to call up a second time. And the paper continued to not be there. So I called up a third time. And by the way, I'm not making all of this up. You can go to Yelp.com and read my scathing review of the home delivery service of the New York Times. So now I got really upset and I made calls, I sent emails, I wrote scathing reviews on sites like Yelp.com. And then something changed. And the paper started coming in at 5.30. Sometimes it even got there at 4.30. The problem is the guy who delivered the paper had a very noisy car and he'd come up and throw the paper and it landed with a plop on the driveway. And my wife is a very sensitive sleeper and she'd get up and guess who she blamed for this. <laughs> I would have paid to have the paper delivered at 8 o'clock. <laughs> Unexpected stuff happens all the time. Here's a wonderful example. This is a case of two Harvard MBAs, and they work together at the same company, and the woman absolutely, absolutely, positively, cordially detested and hated her male colleague. They were always at loggerheads, and she became very adept at playing the political game. She'd go up to the boss and say, well, you know, he really isn't in support of your plan. He is, you know, dropping hints, innuendo, and manipulating. And eventually, she managed to get promoted, and she fired her colleague. And boy, was she happy and delighted when she fired her colleague. So he left the company and he got a job with another company and six months later that company made a hostile takeover bid for her company and it succeeded and he became her new boss and promptly fired her. <laughs> Stuff happens from left field, it happens all the time. Recognize that you're playing around with the illusion of control, you think you have control, you really don't have control. And if you accept that, you'll find that that is a big step towards not reducing, but eliminating stress in your life. So here is how you make a quantum leap. Stop trying to control your life. You can't do it. Think instead in terms of controlling the experience of your life. Now, for some of you, this will make immediate sense. For some of you, you might be puzzled. So let me give you an example. 
Controlling life is not the same thing as controlling your experience of life. There was a time when my daughter and I went out for dinner, and on one particular occasion, it was a reasonably expensive restaurant. Should have been great service and great food, but the service was not great. The waitress messed up the order, and after she messed up the order, she insisted that she had gotten it right and we had gotten it wrong. And it was a somewhat unpleasant experience, and my daughter was getting very angry, and she was thinking in terms of, don't give any tip, and complain to the manager. Not quite a toxic situation, but an unpleasant situation. They say, hey, you know, this is not working out. So I said, look, you know, quite possibly the waitress has something going on in her life that we know nothing about. So normally this is a restaurant, I've been there many times, the service is excellent, so maybe there's something going on. She always had a frown, you know, very much like that. I bet my daughter, you know, I think I can get her to smile in 30 seconds. And my daughter took me all immediately done. So she bet me $50 that I could not get the waitress to smile in 30 seconds or less. And at the conclusion of the meal, I went up and spoke to her. And in less than five seconds, she had a broad grin on her face. And my daughter paid up and we went off. And now it's become a game. Every time we have bad service in a restaurant, rather than putting us off, we simply say, Jake, you know, can we get the waitress to smile? And if you're curious about how I got the waitress to smile in five seconds, I just went after her and said, hey, listen, my daughter and I are having a bed. Would you please look at me and smile broadly? <laughs> and I'll give you 20 bucks. <laughs> so I figured I got 50 from my daughter. I laid out 20. I'm ahead of the game still. <laughs> it works. Let me give you another example. So my wife and I fought a mini golf and there were times when we were playing mini golf and there was a group in front of us which was a couple and their child and the child was very obstreperous and boisterous. He'd hit the ball and it would go off the court and then he'd pick it up and come back and hit it again, it would go off, he'd come back and hit it again and you know it took him forever. And then we also noticed something else. There were three of them, but they were playing with one ball and one club. <laughs> so it occurred to us that, yes, what they had probably done is rather than buy three tickets as they normally would have, they'd simply bought one and all three of them were playing there and it was taking a long time. We were getting more and more irritated until I said, hey, look, you know, here is this young child who's obviously having the time of his life. So we can get really, really annoyed because we're being held up, or we can simply let it go and say, hey, you know, here's a kid who's having such great fun. Why don't we simply enjoy the kid having fun? And the moment we did, all the tension left, and the next all we said, do you guys mind if we play ahead? And they said, fine, and then we were ahead of them, and it didn't matter. A lot of the time in your life, you have the ability to decide what you are going to experience. And I'm going to say more about that in just a few minutes. But before that, I want to share with you one of the core concepts of all of my programs and the work that I do, and that is a concept called mental chatter. 
Mental chatter is an internal monologue that you have going on in your heads all the time. It begins right up when you get up in the morning, is with you throughout the day, is with you right now when out of politeness you ought to be listening to my chatter instead of your chatter. But you're more preoccupied with your chatter. How many of you in the time that I've been speaking have already been somewhere else? You know, what's my kid doing? Is what this guy saying true? That's mental chatter. I rest my case. It's like an unwelcome relative who's shown up at your house and you can't throw him out. Mental chatter has always been a part of your life. Most of the time we try to ignore it, we suppress it, we work around it, we try to live our life as best we can in spite of our mental chatter. That is a huge mistake. And the reason it's a huge mistake is because we build our lives with our mental chatter. We create the world that we live in with our mental chatter. We all think we live in a real world, but we don't. We live in a construct. We live in the matrix. We all live in the matrix. The only difference is this is not a matrix created by an alien civilization out to enslave us. This is a matrix that we created with our mental chatter and our mental models, and I'll get to that shortly. The Buddha's teachings did not come to us because he wrote books. The Buddha's teachings came to us as transcripts of conversations he had with his disciples. And Ananda was one of Buddha's principal disciples. And Buddha asked Ananda, Ananda, if an arrow were to hit you in the arm, would it not be very painful? Ananda nodded and said, yes, Lord, it would be very painful. And if a second arrow were to hit you exactly where the first arrow hit, would it not be even more hurtful? And he nodded and said, yes, Lord, it would hurt a lot. Then Buddha asked, why then do you shoot the second arrow? Now, I noticed some of you looking puzzled, so let me explain. And I'll explain by means of a story. There was this woman who was a good mother, and she had a son who was just turned 16, and he had his learner's permit. And one day he came up to his mother all excited and said, you know, there are a bunch of his friends who were going to get together, and could he please take the car? And the mother, of course, said no. And she said, well, where are you meeting? I'll be happy to drop you. And she said, no, no, you don't understand. You can't be there. I have to go there myself. And he said, fine, I'll drop you and come back. No, 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 that doesn't work. I need to have the car. And could you please? And you know how kids are. They pre-begged and pleaded. And the mother started giving way. No drinking. Yeah, no, 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 no drinking, of course. And you have to be back by 10 o'clock. Yes, and you keep your cell phone on, call. Yes, yes. And eventually, reluctantly, she gave him the keys. And, of course, once he went there, he forgot all about that. He had too many beers, forgot about the curfew, was coming back home, got into a serious accident, and had to be operated on immediately. And the mother rushed to the hospital, waited till the operation was done, and then he was in the recovery room, and she came back home to have a quick shower to go back to the hospital, and a friend called. And the friend said, what kind of a mother are you? You're not a mother, you're a murderer. Now that's a horrible thing for a friend to say at a time like this, right? 
Would you be less surprised if I said it wasn't what the friend said, it's what she told herself? That is the second arrow. We are all very good at shooting second arrows at ourselves. How many times have you laid yourself low? How many times have you berated yourself for taking some damn fool action in retrospect? How many times have you compared yourself unfavorably with someone else? We don't just shoot second arrows. We shoot third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh arrows at ourselves. The important thing for you to note is the second arrow is always delivered by means of mental chatter. Let me repeat that. The second arrow is always delivered by means of mental chatter. That's how important it is. Very closely allied with the Notion of mental chatter is the notion of mental models. And a mental model is a notion you have that this is the way the world works. And you have dozens of models. You've got hundreds of models. You've got a model for everything. You've got a model for how do I find a job? How do I get ahead in my job? How do I find a person to be in a relationship with? How do I bring up my children? You've got dozens of models, probably hundreds of models. Some of these models may be in conflict with each other and you may or may not be aware of those conflicts. The problem is not that you have mental models. The problem is that you're not aware that you have mental models. You think this is the way the world works, but really this is not the way the world works. This is your model of this is the way the world works. And the more you believe in your model of this is the way the world works, the more evidence you seem to get that this is the way the world works. And very soon you build a silo around yourself that's so thick, you can't break out of it. The mistake we make is the following. Whenever someone points out that here's a model and you come up with a different model, the question you always ask yourself is, is this True. Is this right? Wrong question. Every model at some level is right. Every model at some level will crumple. In fact, I'm going to share something with you now. Everything that I am going to share with you today is false. So don't even ask yourself the question, is what this guy is saying true? Because I'm already sharing with you up front that is false. If you push hard enough, if you penetrate deep enough, all of the concepts I'm sharing with you are going to crumble. What you don't recognize is the stuff that you believe, which you have not subjected to the same scrutiny, is equally false. And that too will crumple. So the question to ask yourself is not, is this true or false, right or wrong, good or bad? The question to ask yourself is, does this model work for me in my life now? 
better than what I am currently using? And if the answer to that is yes, you adopt it, you modify it to make it better for your personal circumstances, and you run with it. And if the answer to that is no, discard it and move on to the next one. Do not ask, is what I'm saying true? Ask yourself, does it work for me in my life now better than what I am currently using? Here's an example that I use all the time, and I'm sure that many of you have heard it, but I'm going to repeat it anyway because it gets the point across so beautifully. And I was absolutely delighted when I came down to Croatia and I came to Pula, and I found that, yes, you do have traffic jams in Pula. So here's the deal, and I want all of you not just to think about what I'm saying, but to put yourself in the situation that I'm outlining to you, okay? You're going to an important meeting, you're driving, you're running late, you're stuck in a traffic jam, and it's a really hot day, and the air conditioning in your car has broken down. You're going to an important meeting, driving, running late, stuck in a massive traffic jam, and there's no air conditioning in your car on a really, really hot day. And all of a sudden, another car cuts it in front of you and almost causes an accident. What are your feelings towards the driver of that car? They're not those of loving kindness, right? You're really angry, probably profane, and it's probably a good thing that you don't have a firearm in the car. Road rage was invented in California, but it traveled the world very fast. Now, supposing I share with you that the person who cut you off so rudely had just been informed that his son was involved in a serious accident and had to be operated on immediately and is desperately going to the hospital with no knowledge of whether or not he'll ever see his son alive again. What happens when I share that information with you? You can feel the rage and anger palpably drain out of you to be replaced with compassion for a fellow human being in an unfortunate predicament, right? But you don't really know whether the guy who cut you off was a distraught father or an inconsiderate jerk, right? So here's what you're going to do. You're going to hire a private investigator to look into the matter and report back to you. And if the private investigator reports back to you that the guy was a distraught father, you'll feel great compassion. And if he reports back the guy was an inconsiderate jerk, you'll be really pissed off. But until you know for sure, you're going to remain neutral. That's not going to happen, right? None of you are going to hire a private investigator to look into the matter. But if you don't hire a private investigator to look into the matter, you'll never really know whether the guy who cut you off was a distraught father or an inconsiderate jerk or a host of other possibilities, right? The more important point is it really doesn't matter. You had the choice of determining which is the emotional domain you are going to occupy. Let me repeat. You had the choice of determining which is the emotional domain you're going to occupy. There are two things here. One, you had a choice. And two, you exercise that choice. In all likelihood, this happened so fast that you never even recognized that you were going through these sequences. But now that I have unpacked it, is it clear to all of you that yes, you had a choice and you exercised the choice? The reason this is important is that you face such a juncture in your life. 
dozens of times every day. Let me repeat that. You face such a juncture in your life dozens of times every day. And in a majority of those instances, perhaps the vast majority of these instances, you choose to occupy an emotional domain where you feel angry, frustrated, depressed, and you never even recognize that this was a choice you had and a decision that you made. That's how important these concepts are. I will go further. Every time you have a situation in your life that you find unpleasant, not some of the time, not most of the time, every time you have a situation in life that you find unpleasant and it persists, you are using one or more mental models that are not serving you well. And the moment you make a change in that mental model, the moment you identify that mental model and make a change in it, poof, the situation is going to disappear just like that. And these, by the way, are extraordinarily Powerful. I'm going to share an exercise called alternate reality, and I'm going to describe that exercise for you. For this exercise, what you're going to be doing is you're going to think about a situation in your life that is of concern to you. It can be a personal situation. It can be a professional situation. It's entirely your call. The only thing that's important is that this is a situation that is of concern to you right now. It's taking up a fair amount of your emotional energy. You have created a reality around this situation. Here's the point. You don't think you have created a reality around this situation. You think this is the reality. But it is not the reality, it is a reality. Quite likely, you don't think of it as a reality, you think about it as the reality, but really is a reality. Now, this, by the way, should be tremendously liberating to you, because if what you're stuck in is the reality, and you don't like it, you're screwed. But if it is a reality and not the reality, that's liberating because you can deconstruct it if it's not working and build it up again. And that's exactly what you're going to start doing in the exercise that I'm about to share with you. So you're going to pick a situation in your life that is of concern to you right now, a situation which is soaking up a fair amount of your emotional energy. You're going to describe to members of your group what the situation is. And with their help, you're going to create an alternate reality. And this alternate reality has two parameters. Number one, it has to be better than the one you're experiencing. That's a no-brainer. You don't want to create an alternate reality that's worse than the one you're experiencing. And it has to be something you can plausibly believe at some level. If you can't believe it at any level, it's not going to work. Once you create that alternate reality, 
I'm going to tell you what you're going to do with that. And let me give you a couple of examples first. When my daughter was born, I was still a PhD student. And by some coincidence, it happened that a number of my good friends had gone through the same process and they had children who were already toddlers when my daughter was born. So they were very solicitous and they came out and said, you know, we have a crib that we're not using anymore. Would you like a crib? And how about a stroller and a high chair? And I'm not sure how it is in Croatia, but in the United States, all of these are capital investments. You know, I kind of think that you ought to be allowed to buy it and depreciate it over time. So I said, yes, yes, sure. Crib, bring it on. Stroller, certainly. High chair. So that worked out very fine. But then we moved to the suburb. And when my son was born, I didn't have people showering me with all of these goodies. So we had to go out and buy new stuff for him. And my daughter noticed this and it really bothered her. She'd say, you know, how come I got new stuff and my brother got new stuff? And, you know, we brushed it off and ignored it. But she'd keep coming back to that. You know, how come my brother got new stuff and you bought me used stuff? And I finally came to the painful realization that it wasn't going to go away, had to be dealt with. So I decided I'm going to create an alternate reality for her. And one day I sat down, you know, Gauri, yes, it is true that you got new stuff and your brother got new stuff. But you know, there's something you got new that your brother got used and this is so important in the scale of life that if for the rest of your life, everything you get is used and he gets his new, you're still ahead of the game. She was skeptical. She was also intensely curious. So she thought about it for a while and went off and then she came back and then she went off and finally she said, what did I get new that he got used? So I went down to her conspiratorially and said, you got brand new parents. He got used parents. <laughs> and that particular problem went away forever. I'll give you another example. There was a coaching client of mine who was called in as an interim chief executive officer for a company which was in trouble. So when you are a turnaround artist and you have a company in trouble, you have to do a bunch of things in a hurry. So he did all the things that needed to be done to stanch the cash flow. And then he had a brilliant plan. And he said, okay, we're going to turn the company around. And he called all of his executives together and explained his brilliant plan to them. And then he said, okay, we execute. And he was completely startled at all of the stupid questions his executive asked him. He said, hey, I just explained this to you. And said, you know, I'm stuck with the most incompetent executives out to fire the whole lot. I said, sure, you can fire the whole lot, your CEO. But if you do that, then you don't have enough time to hire new people and onboard them. And the company is going to go down. So whether you like it or not, the team you got is the team you work with. So I suggested an alternate reality to him. Every time one of these executives comes up and asks you a stupid question, you can look upon it as an opportunity to reinforce on a one-on-one -on -one basis the brilliant strategy that you just created and explained to them.
So he was no dummy. He kind of realized he didn't have a choice, said, I think I can make that work. And next time somebody came up and asked him a question, he said, ah, oh, Joe, I'm so glad you asked the question. Come into my office and let's talk about it. I did the same with, oh, Charlie and oh, Chuck. And, you know, and very soon he came back and said, you know, the damn thing really worked. And they were able to pull the company out. I'll share a final example. This is a personal example now to show you how powerful this strategy is. So what happened when I graduated from Columbia is that I got a job in corporate America and I was initially hugely successful. My career took off like a rocket. And then I got burnt out by corporate politics. So I thought, I have a PhD. Let me go to universities where there is no politics and everybody is imbued with a quest for knowledge. <laughs> yes, I discovered that too. But I discovered that after <laughs> I had made the change. And then I found out that politics was alive and well in universities. And my career was stagnating. And all my friends who were in the corporate world were shooting far ahead of me financially and otherwise. And, you know, I was stuck in there feeling really, really sorry for myself. And I, by the way, deliberately joined a lesser known university because I didn't want to publish. You know, one of the reasons I wanted to get out of that is I really don't like academic publishing. And one of the unfortunate byproducts of that is that the students were not the brightest. And I would go off and deliver brilliant lectures, and then they would come back and ask me stupid questions, and I'd get really, really angry. And one day, one of my students came up to me in my office, and she asked me a stupid question. And I remember thinking, why this is a stupid question. I'm quite sure I did not say it, but I'm also sure I must have communicated it by body language and other ways, because she challenged me. She said, Professor Rob, you don't really like me very much, do you? And I was a little taken aback. I don't recollect what I said, but we did get into a conversation. And during the course of the conversation, I discovered that she was the first member of her family to go to college. And she was holding down three jobs. She worked at a department store. She was a waitress at a local restaurant. And she was a bartender over the weekends. And between those three jobs, she was probably putting in about 45 hours a week. And she was carrying a full-time load. And all of a sudden, I felt very deeply grateful to her because... Because of what she did and others like her did, that's what allowed the university to survive. And that, of course, to eventually turned into the salary they paid me, which I used to support my family. So I remember it was almost like a switch going on in my head. Instead of being angry with her for being stupid, I was grateful to her for doing what she did in order to be there. And simultaneously, I recognized it was not the function of my students to give me a great time in the classroom. It was my job to ignite in them the enthusiasm for these wonderful concepts that I was privy to. It was literally like a switch turned in my head. And from then on, I taught every class with the intention of, here are these really fantastic concepts. Let me see if I can make them come alive to the students, the dumb, stupid students. And in a class of 30, probably three or four would come alive and respond to that. And I would teach to them and at them. And the rest of the class came along from the right. And the moment I made that change, my life transformed completely. Not only did I enjoy what I did, but the course that I created, Creativity and Personal Mastery, came into being. And that catapulted me into the top business schools in the world, actually. And, you know, my life changed entirely.
So what I've just shared with you is an extraordinarily powerful tool, the alternate reality. So let me repeat that once again. You're going to pick a situation in your life which is of concern to you, something which is soaking up a fair amount of emotional energy. You have created a reality around it. You think it is the reality, but it's actually a reality. You're going to describe that reality to members of your group. With their help, you're going to create an alternate reality, which is better than the one you're experiencing and which you can plausibly believe at some level. If you like this talk, and I hope you did, please share this with someone you know. Please share this on Instagram and tag me at Vision and tag MindValley at MindValley. Based on what you share, we may even reshare your Instagram story. So I hope you enjoyed this talk. In addition to Instagram, feel free to check out Sri Kumar Rao's programs on MindValley. You can do so by going to mindvalley.com, clicking on programs, and then exploring our list of programs. Rao's program is called the Quest for Personal Mastery, and it is currently our highest rated program on MindValley at the time I'm recording this podcast. Definitely check it out. The Quest for Personal Mastery guides you on a 30-day journey to incorporate into your life the spiritual philosophies of the greatest teachers of the last 3,000 years, from Rumi to Buddha to Confucius. And Rao elegantly combines these philosophies to give you a new way of showing up in life and walking the walk where you basically master the art of living itself. I jokingly call Rao my personal Yoda because he has helped guide me through so much shit in my life and helped me become a better entrepreneur. So like I said, learn about this man, check him out, and hopefully I'll see you enroll in the quest for personal mastery on my back. Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast.